1: In order to thrive in today's competitive business market, you need to constantly adapt to change and shift your business paradigm. Welcome to Business Reinvention with host Nancy Lin for insights on emerging trends that could impact the future of your business. This hour will have you listening to and thinking like the innovative business leaders of today. Now, here's your host, Nancy Lin.
2: Hi, this is Nancy Lin recording from the Silicon Valley. Well, over here, most people equate innovation with technology and entrepreneurship with youth. And it's easy to see why there is such a perception here. Every year, more and more college graduates are moving out here to join the startup community to find the next big thing. But according to Gallup's research, the average age of founding a company in the U.S. is actually at about 40 years old. In fact, entrepreneurs can be found in all age groups, countries, and industries, So if entrepreneurs can arise from any type of background, is entrepreneurial talent innate or learned? Well, I remember going to a startup conference in San Francisco a few years ago, um, and a successful entrepreneur was asked by a student if it's worthwhile going to business school. And the question was met with resounding laughter from the audience. After all, Conventional thinking here is that neither Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg finished college. So what's the point of going to college, let alone business school? Um, The funny thing is that later during the same panel discussion, the entrepreneur gave some business advice and the audience took notes furiously, not knowing that the advice came straight out of business school textbooks. So can join joining the startup movement actually make you start thinking like everyone else around you if you're not careful, then what's the best way to develop unconventional thinking that's critical to successful entrepreneurship? Well, that's what we hope our guest today can enlighten us on, and joining me for the discussion is Daniel Eisenberg. He's a thought leader and the founding executive director of the Babson Entrepreneurship Ecosystem Project. He's also adjunct professor at Columbia School of Business, and before that, Daniel was a professor at the Harvard Business School for 11 years, and he was also a venture capitalist. Dan, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show.
3: Nancy, it's my pleasure to be here as well.
2: I know you have so much experiences in so many different areas. And one thing that you have done is having your own business at one point. Um, what did you do and what surprised you the most about entrepreneurship?
3: Well, um, I don't know if it's anything really surprised me just because I didn't have too many preconceptions. Mm. Um, the, but if I, look, if I look back on it, which is not a very good measure of surprise, I think it, it's how hard it is. That's, that's what sticks in my mind, is that it's much more difficult, much more challenging. There are many more near-death experiences. You have to l- learn continuously about almost everything in order to n- survive and grow. I think those are the things that surprised me the most about it. I think, you- that, and I think that now we have a little bit of a romanticized view of entrepreneurship, something cool. But the ones who succeed... They, most of them, with some rare exceptions, the ones who succeed in building something of scale or any value, they they also go through many, many difficult and challenging situations.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really, really good insight. And you're totally right. There's a lot of glamour around this you know, entrepreneurship and startups. Um, but a lot of time, people don't talk about how hard it is. Um, so do you think that, that success drivers um, for great entrepreneurships have stay the same over the last 20 years or are they skills or qualities that are becoming more important than before?
3: Nancy, I'm 63 and I, I read and I read history. So not only haven't they changed in the last 20 years, but they haven't changed in the last 2000 years. The, 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 this, the basic skills of being an entrepreneur are, are exactly the same. As they've always been, it's it's part of the human experience and human beings haven't changed that much in the last few thousand years. Of course, the tools change, the markets change, the needs change, the problems to be solved change. But the basic process of entrepreneurship is the same.
2: Mm. Well, so now let's talk about some of those qualities or drivers or skills that are important. And your book, um, which is really fascinating, um, the book Worthless, Impossible and Stupid, you talked about the contrarian nature of great entrepreneurs and they tend to see values where no one else does and are able to achieve what's considered impossible or stupid. Um, What would be a good example of that?
3: Well, there's so many and the history books are full, Um, but Almost every successful entrepreneur, and and, you know, you're using superlatives a little bit, but we don't have to resort to superlatives to talk about entrepreneurship. There are some reasonably successful entrepreneurs, and they they all they all most of them, the large majority of them, when they again looking back, uh, at some point they had the experience of really smart people, people whom they respected and and uh, and trusted and listened to thinking that what they were doing or embarking upon wasn't worth doing or isn't worth doing. There's an example in my book. That's a a company that most of you have heard of called JetBlue. And even though David Nealman was a successful airline executive and ran a successful airline, when he started JetBlue with a different concept, the people looked at him and said, he's crazy. they, They sort of humored him to some extent. But they scratched their heads and said they don't think this is going to, quote, unquote, fly. So this is uh, – and that's a fairly air, – the airline industry is a – it's not a newfangled, innovative uh, activity. It's, it's, it's something that's been – it's a business model. Of course, it changes, but it's pretty much succeeded in more or less the same way since it was founded. <laughs>
2: Um, and I remember actually from your book, there's another story that was really interesting. You talk about this um, young man from India selling Bible in the Bible belt. Um, that was really just fascinating how he was able to be successful in doing something he had completely no knowledge of.
3: Well, that, so that, that you're referring to Abhi Shah, who was one of my students at the Harvard Business School. And Abhi... Uh, has founded a company called Clutch Group, which is the leading legal process outsourcing company in the world. It's won a lot of awards, and it's growing very rapidly. But one of the skills that he learned before he came to Harvard Business School, he was at University of, Te- of Texas. He learned how to sell, and here he was. Uh, he was young when he went to college, seventeen. And here was a, a Gujarati Hindu selling Bibles in the deep south, in a small, in a town of about eighteen thousand people, in the sweltering heat during the summer. And of course, it, it, it took him some time to learn how to sell. But after four summers, he was working in the summer, uh, in between his uh, his school years, and uh, that over time he learned how to actually make money selling Bibles. And if you can think of a product that is less differentiable than a Bible, <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about selling that? No matter who you are, especially if you're not, uh, you're not raised in the Christian faith, et cetera, how do you know how to sell that? Well, I'll, I'll be learned, and I've heard him talk about Bibles, and as he talks about them, it, it's an amazing thing that he, he, he makes you want to buy one.
2: Well, so they kind of um, have something in common, um, as you pointed out. And, and I think every great business starts with a good idea. Um, but it sounds like these people had the ability to see um, things that nobody else saw. Well, and they let me interrupt,
3: s- Nancy. I want yeah. to disagree with you there. Okay. Every, great, every great business starts with a bad idea. <laughs> okay. the The whole thesis of my book is that you can't really tell good ideas from bad ideas in advance. If you could, you and I would make a lot more money because we bet on the good ones, right? Right. You, you bet on the good ones because you know what they are in advance. The problem is that people don't know what the good ones are in advance. And the really good ones look really bad when they're being started.
2: Yeah. So,
3: I mean, talk about a silly, uh, silly business, 140-character microblogging. By the way, I was in the first 500,000 Twitter users I checked today. In April 2007, I signed up for Twitter, and it was dormant for four years because I couldn't figure out what that could be useful for. Mm. Well, that's an example of an idea that's a pretty bad idea, that worked. Pandora was an idea. It started off as something called Music Genome, which was matching people's likes of different of music, identifying the underlying structure of music. So if I liked uh, Kenny Garrett and jazz, they could predict what other kinds of music I would like. And they were—they—they they had no business revenues, no investors. They were, people were working for free. Tens of people working for free in the company for two years. It's most of the businesses that are successful are are uh, don't don't seem like good ideas. And I would say on the on the other uh, on the other side, a lot of. Businesses that look extremely interesting, ideas that look extremely interesting and we all rush towards turn out to be foolish.
2: So, okay, so you brought up a lot of good points, including like, you know, having to be um, persistent. But one really interesting uh, point that you mentioned was that they have this unique perspective to be able to see value in something that's considered a bad idea. What's the reason behind their ability to do that?
3: Well, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 when you look at the examples, it's pretty hard to find unifying themes because the minute you find a unifying theme, you'll see somebody with a counterexample. But there's no doubt that a combination of independent thinking on the one hand, looking at problems from a different perspective, is essential. But at the same time, if you're only thinking independently and you're not listening to people you're not learning you're not studying the models that actually work if you're not understanding the mechanics of a business the things that are very well known you probably won't be successful so, so it's a blend so it's a blend you have to balance it's bat, it's a continual balancing act people tell me students and first-time entrepreneurs Come to me a lot of times, and they say, "Oh, I'm passionate about the idea. This idea, and passion will make you successful, and so on." You hear professors say that as well. But uh, it—you have to blend the what I call the oil of passion with the water of cool objectivity of looking hard at the market and seeing not what you want to see, but what's really there. Mm,
2: very fascinating. Well. Obviously, we have a lot more to talk about, but first, let's uh, take a quick break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. You can also download our podcast from Voice America, iTunes, or Stitcher. So stay tuned, and we'll be back after these messages.
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
5: In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of the curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we help leaders at fast-growing companies develop the leadership capacity necessary to manage growth more effectively. Contact us today to learn more about our executive coaching services and leadership workshops. Call 415-322-9073 to transform your business and leadership with Change Agent SF.
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Now, back to Business Reinvention.
2: So, Dan, um, a couple of comments about what you said, um, which was really interesting. Um you know, one thing when I was reading your book is like this thing keeps coming to my mind is the three laws of performance. And and the first one is how people perform correlates to how situation occurred to them. In other words, how they perceive the situation determines their success. And so since like a lot of good entrepreneurs, they're able to have this different perspective and um, identify something that's seemingly worthless and then turn it into something valuable. Um mm-hmm. But then you also mentioned the importance of having experience and being able to kind of validate their idea and also their previous experience actually um, was one of the key reasons for their ability to identify um, some of these opportunities. Um, if that is the case, then you would think that um, older entrepreneurs are more likely to be successful, uh, which may be contrary to um, the startup stories that we've been hearing a lot in the news. Um, and there's actually a study by Kaufman Foundation that kind of supports this argument. It looks at 5,000 startups launched in uh, 2004. And the report shows that older entrepreneurs are starting – a greater number of companies, and in particular, are starting a greater number of high-growth companies, and their companies have a significantly better chance to survive than the ones started by the younger entrepreneurs. Um, and 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 I think a lot of people will find this surprising. But of course, there are also other people with other arguments, and they point out that you know the kinds of businesses uh, founded by younger entrepreneurs tend to uh, make. A much bigger impact when they succeed and leave a much lighter mark when they fall. What do you think about these two points of view?
3: Um, I th- I think that youth is completely overrated, <laughs> the, uh, and that's I've always thought that even when I was young. The, there's value in having experience. It doesn't mean that you can't be successful as a young entrepreneur, but I think that it's a criterion for being successful is absolute. Um, hogwash,
2: hmm.
3: the, not only do the data not support it, but logic doesn't support it either. Having uh, experience, wisdom, being able to make decisions in a, in a mature way, I think is, is critically important in entrepreneurship. And you look behind a lot of the so-called young entrepreneurs, there are old people lurking in the background. So there was a fellow named Eisenstadt in Apple, who uh, was helping Jobs uh, way back when? He's an experienced business person. There's, of course, in Google you have uh, Eric Schmidt. Uh, so uh, that youth is real, really, really overrated.
2: Um, and so, and, and I think another reason that you're talking about why experience matters is that a lot of Good entrepreneurs actually identify opportunities in the previous you know, industries that they worked in. And, and because of the knowledge that they had uh, was the reason why they were able to find these opportunities that other people who didn't have were not able to. That's right. Yeah.
3: But, but, I, I, but again, I don't, I, don't want to glo- I don't want to say that youth is, can't be successful. Of course, it can be. But I, it's definitely not a precondition. Right, it's not a must-have. There's other research, not just Kaufman's, but there's other research which shows that uh, people who have ten or fifteen years of industry experience, when they start companies or when they buy companies, by the way, we're really overemphasizing startups in this conversation so far. But when they when they build companies, they build them faster. They raise more money. That's not such a bad thing, is it?
2: Mm. Very wonderful points. But if you are fresh out of college and you know you want to be an entrepreneur because you don't like to be told what to do and you like to question conventional wisdom, but you have no idea what business to get into, what advice would you give the entrepreneur wannabe to help them decide what to focus on?
3: My, my advice would depend on the person. It would depend on the situation. But in general, I would say it doesn't matter if you want to think independently. Try, try to work somewhere. Try to get a job. You can learn in an interesting company. By the way, the bigger companies in many ways are more interesting. You have more opportunity. You can see more things happening. So then when you go off and do something on your own, you have uh, exposure to a much broader variety of disciplines. And there are a lot of people who do that, whether it's working in consulting firms, investment banks, other professional services, or going and working for a manufacturing company or what have you. So I don't. Uh, there are, of course, there are, there are a small minority of people who absolutely under no circumstances can work for anybody, but that's not a, that's not a prerequisite or a guarantee that they're going to be good entrepreneurs either. Good entrepreneurs are not the ex- as exciting as we think they are. They are good managers. They're good team builders. They master the mechanics and the nuts and bolts of running a business. And of course, they have big vision, they're relentless, they don't give up easily, they view challenges as opportunities, but they get the basics right. And if they don't, they're not going to succeed. And if they want to succeed, they'll learn the basics very quickly.
2: Mm. So now let's talk about the nuts and bolts because that's another part of um, you know, entrepreneurship is that they have to overcome challenges that seem impossible to conquer sometimes. Um, and it's really interesting that they make obstacles the condition of the game. Um, how else do they think differently about situations or especially tough situations that helps them carry out their vision despite challenges along the way?
3: Well, a good entrepreneur, and I don't know how many there really are what percentage are really good, but the ones who can actually build companies, they have an ability to understand how value is created for everybody they work with. So the obvious starting point is the customer to be able to understand how do you engage a customer, understand what the customer wants, what's valuable for him or her, and to provide that value. That's, I think, a, an intrinsic. Ability of entrepreneurs, again, the ones who are going go on to be successful, and that same process—you could call that the sales process. But that's a generic process. So, in working with employees, hiring people, bringing in partners, uh, uh, attracting suppliers, getting a good deal on a rental sp- office—that all that re- you're you're very much helped or benefited by your ability to listen, to understand what motivates the person who's talking in front of you. And to be able to address their needs, not yours, but address theirs. Mm -hmm. That generic sales process is essential to entrepreneurship. And by the way, it's one of the things that we don't teach entrepreneurs enough. When they look back, the successful ones, they look back and they said, you know what? I didn't have enough of appreciation of the process of selling. I didn't have enough of an appreciation of building a team of employees who are highly motivated. I didn't understand enough or have a big enough appreciation for building policies, procedures, and organizational platforms. When they look back and you talk to them, those are the things that they wish they'd done differently and which they'll do differently next time around.
2: Right. And we also don't teach listening a lot in school. Um, But empathy, like you said, is really important. And then selling vision, you know, selling your, you know, your, your business idea to the vendors, to your employees, and, and not just investors um, are really important, like you said. But another thing that's really important is also risk-taking. Um, do the great entrepreneurs have a different relationship with risk that sets them apart from other people?
3: Yes, I think they do, but I don't think it's in either being more risk-taking or more risk-averse. I think it's what I call risk-optimization. So, I think the good entrepreneurs are always pushing the risk envelope, but never breaking it the 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 notion that you can just jump in and uh, place big bets is is a false one, and good entrepreneurs are placing small bets they're placing bets that they can manage, and if they're placing a bet, let's say in technology or let's say they're placing a bet in a new market, then they'll tend to reduce the bets or reduce the risk they're taking in other areas. And this is what I call risk optimization. Uh, Think, for example, of uh, a mountain climber. So a mountain climber is motivated by the challenge of getting to the top. And that's something that not very many people can do. That's what's part of the challenge of it. It's relatively unusual. But are they risk takers? Well, if they really were risk averse, they wouldn't get up on the mountain. But if they were really risk takers, they wouldn't take crampons and ropes and study and uh, take all the safety precautions. They optimize the risk.
2: I really love that expression, like risk optimization, that really um, the, you know this concept and mindset really, really well. So can I say that they take calculated risk is kind of what you're saying?
3: Well, calculated risks aren't necessarily risky. For, and and mm-hmm. by the way, they vary from person to person. If I have $10 million in the bank that I don't need, let's say, then for me to put a make, place a bet, so to speak, of $500,000 isn't risky. But for someone else who has a few hundred bucks in the bank, that is an extremely risky proposition. So risk is not this uniform value that's the same for everybody. And it varies over time. So what I today may see is risky, yesterday I didn't see, and vice versa. I change with experience. The more experience I have, the more I understand what's dangerous or risky, what has the high probability of failure, and what has a low probability of failure, and how I manage that.
2: So can we actually teach someone some of the qualities of successful entrepreneurship, such as risk-taking?
3: Let me flip the question. The question is, can people learn it? Mm -hmm. Not whether we can teach it. Mm. It's a little bit like asking, can we teach people how to dance? Well, a lot of it depends on how much someone wants to learn how to dance. And if you take 100 people and those 100 people have a burning desire to learn how to dance, most of them will. Some of them will learn how to dance ballet and salsa, which I dance, by the way, and I learned at an old age. Um, Or they'll dance hip hop and some of them will dance something else maybe their own version, but they'll all, most of them, not all of them, but most of them will learn how to dance. Some may take a year. Some may do it in five years. So I think, yes, that there's no doubt. And there's lots of evidence that entrepreneurs can learn from experience and from other people and from books and for classes, from classes, how to be successful as an entrepreneur.
2: Well, let's talk some more after the break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn for up-to-date business and innovation trends. Go to bizreinvention.com or follow me on Twitter at bizreinvention. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
5: In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of the curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we help leaders at fast-growing companies develop the leadership capacity necessary to manage growth more effectively. Contact us today to learn more about our executive coaching services and leadership workshops. Call 415-322-9073 to transform your business and leadership with Change Agent SF.
1: Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right.
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Now, back to Business Reinvention.
2: All right, Dan. So um, during a break, we were talking about different types of entrepreneurship. I know startups gets um, a lot, a lot of coverage, um, but there is actually a lot broader than that, right?
3: Absolutely, Nancy. It's first of all not everybody who starts a company is an entrepreneur, and not every uh, entrepreneur starts a company. So, for example, uh, and. Some of your listeners may not be aware of this, but Starbucks was 16 years old when Schultz uh, bought it for 3.7 or $3.8 million. Hmm. And he had worked there. And he bought a company that already had, to some extent, a brand. And he built it into what the mammoth successful corporation that it is today. But he certainly didn't start it. Even Elon Musk if you look at the record, he didn't start Tesla. He invested in Tesla. There was another CEO and he replaced the CEO after a few years, not very many, but must he replaced the CEO. He didn't start the company. Robert Westman, who's on his way to building a second billion dollar company. He didn't start the first, his first company activists, which is now one of the 10 largest drug companies in the world. He bought into it. So These are completely legitimate forms of entrepreneurship, no less important, no less value-creating than the Facebooks of the world. So Facebook is, of course, extraordinarily valuable, but not intrinsically more value-creating than starting a company. Mm, And And just registering a company, Nancy, just starting up a company doesn't mean that you have this drive to grow, to create unusual value in the world, in the marketplace.
2: That's right. But we also talked about bad idea and good idea um, and also risk-taking and that. Um, So, I mean, for example, a few years back, I set a goal for myself to raise money in Mexico for a medical school designed um, for indigenous women from rural areas. And I wanted to help the school reduce its dependency on international funding because it was beginning to decline. And most people told me that I was crazy because Mexico didn't have a strong culture of philanthropy back then. And on top of that, I only knew one family in Mexico and my Spanish was very limited and I was new to fundraising. Um, but other people's resistance to believe in change made me want to do it even more, despite the fact that I had no clue how it's going to make it happen. And I eventually managed to have some success with a lot, a lot of luck and hard work. But looking back, I realized that I was crazy, even though I didn't realize it then. <laughs> and this happens a lot with entrepreneurs who have even greater vision. And you talked about, you know, how a lot of them started with what consider bad ideas by others, right? So they tend to thrive on challenge, but how can you tell insanity from passion or optimism?
3: Well, the, the, the hard reality is that you can only know, uh, you can only really distinguish the two after the fact. Hmm. So if you're David Nealman, again, using the JetBlue example, where people thought he was crazy, well, if he'd have failed, they would have said, yep, that was a bad idea.
2: <laughs> That's right.
3: So you really only know looking back on it. It's a very interesting website that I'd urge your listeners to take a look at. It's it's the website of one of the top venture capital firms in the entire world called Bessemer Venture Partners, BVP dot com, and they have a tab in their on their website called their anti portfolio, and there they list. All of the deals that went on to be amazingly successful that they passed on, such as Federal Express and Google and eBay, and they passed on all of these because they thought the ideas were really bad. I have experienced myself as a venture capitalist, we invested uh, in around 1998 or 1999 in a search company which had much better technology than Google. In fact, the, the founder is a vice president of Google today. And... Uh, and when Google was founded, the venture capital industry had turned really cold on search companies. You, if you were a search fu- uh, a search company, you couldn't raise money. But here you go. You have Larry Page and Sergey Brin right at that same time founding a company based on search. That became, you know, you don't have to tell anybody. Google is Google. So So you really only know looking back. And even the best investors, such as Bessemer, even the very best make real mistakes,
2: Mm, that's a really good uh, word of wisdom, um, so it really involves a lot of persistence and ability to take chances but but in your book you also talked about how important it is for entrepreneurs to perceive when the market may be overvaluing your idea and the need to fold them. so how do you decide when to quit and when to sell? Is it a rational decision or is it just a matter of having good eq to be able to let go
3: well the first of all when to fold is one thing and when to sell is something else those are, Two related but different things. Uh, I have a case study of a, an entrepreneur who is now in his late eighties, named Bert Valfoven. He's Dutch. Founded over forty companies, and he and and if you talk about uh, what I said earlier about passion not being necessarily the guide to entrepreneurship that people think it is, he was passionless about. Setting up a company, buying a company, selling it when, uh, when, the, when the market was high, when he could make a lot of money, closing it when he knew it couldn't be successful. And that's something that I think it's a mindset, and it requires a certain passionlessness in order to be successful at it. If you buy high and sell low, you're not a good entrepreneur. A good entrepreneur buys low and sells high. That means you're you're buying when everyone else thinks that it's not worth anything, and you're selling when everyone thinks it's worth more than you think. You have to go against the market to be a successful entrepreneur, and that has to do with knowing when to fold and knowing when to sell.
2: Well, that's the really hard part, right? Because going back to whether or not you know something is a bad idea, a good idea, you have to keep trying, right? But there's a point for every entrepreneur, even a successful entrepreneur. You know, they had the moment of doubt, like, "Wait, am I onto something, or is this the time to quit? You know, do I just try a little harder to make it happen, or is it because um, I'm I just didn't start with the right idea, right? So. What are the questions you can ask yourself when, when you're at that moment, you know, um, a, a moment of truth?
3: That's where having uh, a lot of information, having really uh, good industry experience, it can be very helpful. It's called judgment, Nancy. Uh, judgment is also underrated, I think, these days. But having good judgment is essential. I don't think there's a recipe for it. Mm. And there are some entrepreneurs, and Robert Westman, as I referred to him earlier, the, he's found his second company, is called the Alvagen. It's now, after five years, doing half a billion dollars of revenues the past year. And the, the, this, this, this judgment, he has the mindset of never doubting himself. Doubt just doesn't occur to him. But that's different from his ability to look at a situation to analyze it to look at contradictory information and to make a decision is the market overvalued is it undervalued and how do i how do i go forward
2: well wow, that's really really a tough one um so let's continue on and talk about the value and you talked about you know buying low and selling high and that goes back to what you're saying about the ability to identify something that was overvalued i mean excuse me undervalued by other people right and by implementing and making the product or service available at market value um that's how you create the extra value but that's exactly right right but but is there more to that because some entrepreneur i mean I guess a lot of entrepreneurs create value, but some create extraordinary value.
3: I think if you don't create extraordinary value, you're not an entrepreneur. That is the definition. Mm. That's, that's, part, that's a, a big piece of the definition of entrepreneurship. If you're not creating a situation in which you're creating so much value that somebody will pay much more than it costs you to make or to deliver, then you're not an entrepreneur.
2: Interesting. Um, The other
3: piece of that, by the way, that's also underrated, I mean, I'm shocked when I read comments by people like Bill Gates and Richard Branson and other very successful entrepreneurs and, of course, wealthy because they were successful. They say that money isn't that important or it's not the only uh, element to happiness or – You should have an impact and not try to make money or not try to become wealthy. That's after they made their first billion, of course, that they're saying those things. The ability to capture value, I think, is an essential aspect of the process of entrepreneurship. The motivation, the measurement of success, not only by money, but that's most by far the most common yardstick, is an essential part of entrepreneurship. If you create extraordinary value and your investors make all the money, your partners make all the money, and you're left with nothing, well, there are very few entrepreneurs that would say that's really successful if they're in the same situation. That's right. Except for perhaps as a rationalization postdoc. Mm.
2: Well, some people also think that there should be less structure either internally or externally for entrepreneurs because after all, one of the reasons they wanted to have their own ventures is to have the freedom of doing what they believe in. But you actually encourage um, entrepreneurs you work with to be more strategic and s- systematic in their way um, or their approach to grow their business. Um, how do you freedom, help them with that?
3: Freedom is – first of all, I want to adjust, uh, address that the freedom. Of course, I think that that, that also is overrated. Uh, um, if, if you want to be independent, the chances of you being successful because of that are, are extraordinarily slim. The, the, you buy your independence with a lower income. Most people buy their independence with a lower income. <laughs> by far, by far, the small business owners are, are, have a lower salary, lower income, than they would have as employees by far. In the UK, after six years, the average company revenues, top line revenues, is about thirty five forty thousand dollars a year.
2: right not to mention a lot of work that you put into probably a lot more than when you were working full-time for somebody else Um, so there's definitely a lot of misperception about um, entrepreneurship um, and a lot of um, hard work that goes into it that people don't know about
3: absolutely i agree with that
2: okay looks like it's time to uh, take another break Um, we're just gonna do a really quick one and we'll be right back
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
5: In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of the curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we help leaders at fast-growing companies develop the leadership capacity necessary to manage growth more effectively. Contact us today to learn more about our executive coaching services and leadership workshops. Call 415-322-9073 to transform your business and leadership with Change Agent SF.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Now, back to Business Reinvention.
2: All right, so Daniel, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the practical issues that uh, entrepreneurs have to deal with. Um, if you're looking to have an advisory board, how would you go about selecting advisors and how do you decide when is the right time to create day one?
3: It's an excellent question because advisory boards, they can be extraordinarily helpful, but they require work and they require management to make them be helpful to you. So, it's not something that an entrepreneur should embark upon unless they're ready to allocate the time to make that advisory board work for them. Hmm. The m- person I mentioned, Abhi Shah, who was my student at the Harvard Business School who founded Clutch Group, is a really good example. For me, he's the gold standard of creating an advisory board because he went to, he made a very clear analysis of his business and asked himself, what are the strategic needs of my business? How do I create, on the one hand, a platform? for selling, for acquiring customers? How do I create a platform for delivering my service? And he analyzed both sides of both of those two sides of the coin and then decided that in order to penetrate these markets and acquire these kinds of customers, here are the kinds of people I'm going to need. And in order to deliver the product, here are the kinds of people I'm going to need. So he systematically collected advisors from both those sides of the coin, the the acquisition platform, let's say, and the delivery platform. Uh, He did it very intentionally. By the way, he required each one of them to make an investment. He wouldn't appoint them as an advisor unless they're willing to make an equity investment in his company, which is a very interesting approach. Most entrepreneurs are probably afraid to do that because they'll probably say no. That's the advice my son's starting a company. One of my sons is starting a company now, and that was my advice to him as well. If you... If you have someone as an advisor who's experienced and they're not willing to invest, two things. First of all, that signals to other investors that there may be something not as attractive about this particular venture that you've got. That's number one. And number two, when they invest, they have a a massive skin in the game.
2: Mm, Very interesting. So understanding your own needs and objective for having an advisory board and then really hold them accountable.
3: And you're self-accountable for managing them and getting them and putting them to
2: work. Mm, That's right. And you also touched on the importance of team building, right? Um, So I know a lot of people see the successful entrepreneurs as the heroes, but usually there's a strong team behind them. Um, What's some of the best team building you've ever seen? Like what did they do that was really effective?
3: well, Well, so first of all, I wouldn't say usually, I would say always they have a strong team behind them because you can't scale. Unless you have a strong team.
2: That's right. Things
3: I learned in my company, I had two, two partners uh, in my company. They weren't founders, but I brought them in as partners after they worked in the company. They We had very different skills, and they were much better than I was at particular things. So I think the first, uh, in building a, a top team, let's say, I think one of the first things is to make sure that you're hiring people or bringing on board people who are really better than you at something. That requires a certain amount of self-confidence. Right. But unless they're better than you, you're going to have trouble scaling up your business. The second thing that I think is really essential is is a common set of values. Even though the three of us were very different from each other, we had common values in hard work. We had common values in customer service. We had common values and honesty with each other. And that kept us together, despite the fact that we're very different from each other.
2: Mm, great advice. Um, you also talked about the possibility of buying somebody else's business. Um, is it all about financial when you're evaluating this? Or are there other considerations that you need to take into?
3: Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I, I, I can say that I encounter increasing numbers of entrepreneurs will say, I'll never start a company again. If I have to do this over again, I'll buy something. Because the uncertainty and the difficulty of starting from this, something from scratch is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. And if you compare that with the possibility of buying something that's partly, already partly formed and with experience, you know how to separate the wheat from the chaff, what's good about this from what's bad about it, how to get rid of the inefficient aspects of that company. Uh, it's it's a much faster path.
2: Hmm, definitely. Um, well, we have two minutes for one more question. Um, a recent Gallup report shows that the U.S. entrepreneurship is in decline. Um, when you compare it the, to the you know new business start rate in say 1977.
3: Oh, absolute uh, bullshit. I'm sorry to say it. It's really? Go ahead. It's absolute It's absolute ridiculous. The the. The most successful com- countries in entrepreneurship have fewer startups, not more.
2: Huh. That's interesting. So are business you say-
3: registrations are are a are, are a very bad guide to entrepreneurship, and there is no evidence at all that I know of. Despite the fact that the Brookings Institution says it, and sometimes Kaufman Foundation has said it, or some people have worked there, there is no evidence whatsoever that generically the the United States is in decline in terms of entrepreneurship.
2: Interesting. Um, So what do you think we need to do in terms of entrepreneurship um, ecosystem to help bolster the success rate or continue with the growth?
3: So so this is what I've devoted the last six years of my life to finding out. And we have projects in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for example, not – typically considered to be a hotbed of entrepreneurship until you look into that into into Milwaukee and then you see there's a lot more there than meets the eye. So scale at Milwaukee is, is a, a project to systematically um, methodically and methodologically foster an entrepreneurship ecosystem that will result in more and more high growth companies, not necessarily more and more new companies, but more and more high growth companies. So, an entrepreneurship eco- – by the way, we also have a project in a, a city in Colombia of about half a million people called Manizales. That's also generating significant numbers of high-growth companies, not new companies, but companies that are growing more rapidly.
2: So what are they doing differently?
3: Well, the, it, we've identified six domains of an entrepreneurship ecosystem, including the culture, including the availability of finance, including of appropriate forms of finance including um, the right kinds of policy and the right level of government support or intervention, which is usually a fairly low level, by the way. Uh, It includes access to markets. It includes the things that people usually think of as, as, as an ecosystem for entrepreneurship, such as co-working spaces, but that's a really trivial part of an entrepreneurship ecosystem. And we systematically enhance all those six domains of the entrepreneurship ecosystem, and we integrate them all around the concept of growth. If you focus on growth as the purpose of an entrepreneurship ecosystem, it leads you to very good decisions. If you focus on startups as the purpose of an entrepreneurship ecosystem, it leads you to very bad decisions.
2: Very, very important um, point that you're making here. Well, we hope that we will get a chance to learn more about the project you're working on. And it looks like with that, I have to wrap up our conversation today. Dan, thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Nancy, thank you very much for having me.
2: Thank you. And I also want to thank the audience for tuning in. You can tweet your comments to me at Mention. Please join me again next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Or Download our podcast. Until then, take care and have a good week.
1: We hope that you've enjoyed Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Please join us for another edition of our groundbreaking program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In the meantime, follow Nancy on Twitter at BizReinvention to keep up on the innovation trends and information about our next show. Or go to bizreinvention.com for more business insights. That's bizreinvention.com.